I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. On this episode of What Got You There, I sit down with Megan Sullivan, and Megan's a professor of philosophy, and she's also the director of Notre Dame's Institute of Advanced Study. Megan is a really deep thinker, and we're going to talk a lot about the book she wrote, The Good Life Method, which is based on the course she launched at Notre Dame, which is one of the most popular courses on Notre Dame's campus. And what we talk about here is how we can use philosophy and stoicism to help guide our lives, the, the good life, and understand what a good life means, and what are the major influences and factors that contribute to that, what, what are the thought-provoking questions we can ask ourselves to explore that better, uh, what are some of the exercises she used with her students and just ways that we can uncover more and make our lives more fulfilling. So if you're into philosophy, stoicism, trying to figure out how to live a better life, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Megan Sullivan. Hey, listeners, as you gear up for 2022, I have an important question for you. Is your investment strategy where you want it to be? Because in today's unpredictable market, there's probably never been a better time to diversify your portfolio with a resilient alternative asset class, assets like blue chip works of art. That's right, blue chip works of art. Did you know the price appreciation of art has outpaced the S&P 500 since 1995 and is estimated to be worth 1.7 trillion? Yes, trillion with a T. And this year, everyone can invest in artwork without spending millions of dollars with Masterworks. Masterworks is disrupting the investment landscape, so you can add paintings by iconic artists like Picasso, Monet, and Basquiat to your portfolio at an affordable entry point. I had their CEO, Scott Lynn, on the show back on episode 274, and he just provided a masterclass in what it takes to lead a hot-growing startup. I was blown away that Masterworks is the only company out there securitizing artwork. It's super exciting stuff. And since I last spoke with Scott, some of their investors received a net IRR of 31% based on the recent sale of a painting. Mind listeners can receive priority access to their newest offerings. Just go to masterworks.io slash what got you there. Again, that's masterworks.io slash what got you there. You can also see important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Megan, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? 
Uh, I'm doing great, Sean. I don't know. It's like it's the week before Thanksgiving. If you work at a university, this is the week when just everything explodes. <laughs> so we're at that phase. But otherwise, I'm doing great. No, it's it's so funny. I, I even was thinking of the timing of this, uh, and it was like, oh wow, <laughs> Megan's going to be incredibly busy. So so I do appreciate this. And, and yeah. speaking about what you do in terms of academia, I mean, I, I know you've worked with thousands and thousands of students, and and I'm really intrigued about the learning process of the students who engage most deeply with your work, because whether this be arts, music, whatever it is, I think the best learners engage in a different way. And I'm wondering what you've seen out of the, let's just call them exceptional students that not only grasp the concepts, but integrate those lessons in their life. I'm wondering what you've seen. I've noticed a couple, a couple of surprising features of really excellent philosophy students. I mean, your stereotype of a great philosophy student is somebody that can like read a book every single night and smokes clove cigarettes and writes essays that nobody understands, has like a GRE level vocabulary. And, and I mean, that that is a stereotype of a philosophy student, but those are not typically the very best students in my class. The very best learners that I see, and this, this is true of freshmen in college, it's also true of graduate students. First, they are very curious. Uh, so they've, every time they start to get an answer to a question, it just generates like four more questions for them. So they might set out to wonder, how many different arguments are there for being a vegan? And they're genuinely curious about that question and they'll start listing all of them out. And as they look at the arguments, that'll prompt them to ask even bigger questions about what, uh, what is human nature? And they'll ask the question and they won't be afraid about how big and woolly it is. They'll just keep writing and going down through their questions rather than what a lot of really ex a feature of a lot of excellent college students, but it's bad for philosophy is they really want to please me or they really want to know what I think the right answer or the smartest answer is. I spend a lot of time trying to tell students that I might have strong views about what the right answer is, but to be really great at philosophy, it has to come from them and it has to be like their authentic way of investigating the topic. So I think that's one feature. They're really curious. Another thing I really look for in students is kindness and engagement with other students. And again, this isn't just because it makes the classroom a lot happier when people are friends with each other, though it definitely does. But for philosophy in particular, the way we do philosophy is in dialogue. I and mean, the really great philosophical masterpieces like Plato, Aristotle, Kierkegaard, they're all philosophers talking with other people who might disagree with them, who see things a little bit differently, who they want to convince. And I really like students who realize that they're going to be learning philosophy with other people who are curious about their own questions and who require kindness and engagement. And that also kind of cuts against the stereotype of a philosopher, somebody who kind of sits in their armchair quietly speculating by themselves rather than being really social and being involved in, in being out there like in the mix with other people. Can you even go a little bit further on dialogue? You mentioned a few things there, right? Like even being able to grasp um, disconfirming evidence or, or views that are going to challenge yours. I'm just wondering, especially in, in the, the classroom context, how you're able to navigate all those different views and then allow good dialogue to come through. Yeah, Sean, it's the easiest thing in the universe right now to convince really smart people to have conversations with people who really disagree with them. It is the hardest thing in the universe right now. I think it helps me 
it helps me quite a bit to actually read the ancient Greeks. Like 2,400 years ago in Athens, they were having the same problems as we're having. Of like people really were suspicious about whether their democracy was still working, or suspicious that everybody that they were trying to have a conversation with always has an ulterior motive or is trying to gain power over them. That dynamic certainly exists in our country, and it definitely exists in classrooms. I think. First, we have to realize that having a really good dialogue about, certainly about morality or politics or religion or the good life right now, it's something you have to work at. It's not something that there's like some hidden hack, like you uh, have this really great questionnaire or this really good app, and now suddenly you're going to be able to have these great conversations. These have always been things that people have earned. Philosophers, certainly Socrates, earned it through a lifetime of work. So realizing that it's meant to be challenging and it always has been. I think the second thing that helps in the classroom, especially when you're meeting 18, 19 year olds who really want to develop this skill, but are at stage one, stage zero, and and probably also have bad adult role models, like they see people going at each other, is, uh, is to design your time together in class so that some of the bad assumptions that we inherit from our day-to-day life don't enter into that space. And here's what I mean. Like we might, st- we might say that we're going to have an hour-long class and we eventually want to get to a point where we can discuss what it is to have a good goal for family life. And this can be controversial really fast because there are different kinds of families and there are different kinds of moral commitments that go into those families. And our culture says, like, rush into the debating points, like whatever you read in the news that day. We really try to short circuit that, that rush to rush into the big debates in our class. Instead, we will spend the first five to 10 minutes of the class session just talking about how we want to talk with each other and why these debates might sometimes feel so fraught. We do a lot of activities with our students where we try to give them an opportunity to know who else is in the room before they get a chance to start giving philosophical arguments. So, for example, if we know that given the philosophy we've been reading, we're talking about what kinds of lives are worth living. That's a topic that comes up in philosophy all the time. I want my students to have a little bit of sense about who else is in the room on that question with respect to, do people have disabled siblings or parents? Uh, Do people come from big families or small families, or do they have kind of non-traditional families? Uh, When did people in that room start getting a sense of what they thought family life meant to them. Like different people come to different realizations about how important this is. What was going on in their life when they started to develop their vision of this? Like learning to tell each other's stories a little bit and to be curious about where other people are coming from in their particular lives before we start to get into a big debate about what decisions the Supreme Court should make. I think moving really intentionally and gradually is is extremely important in philosophy classrooms. One, Because people's experiences are evidence for the philosophical views that they are going to take quite seriously. And two, because we want to practice this skill of building up understanding of the question rather than thinking that having read about it for five minutes on a web page or having listened to a hot take on the radio, you have enough evidence to to start working on this like a philosopher, if that makes sense. So we spent a lot of time trying to get the stories out 
and a lot of time developing just this initial curiosity about what in particular has led this person to start to have these philosophical views. Inherited assumptions, it's, it's such a, a complicated thing. So many people are so unwilling to to drop those assumptions. And then also, like you mentioned there, we, we all come from different backgrounds, different experiences. I, I'm envious that like there's a point, I obviously was a college student that was over a decade ago, but I miss that opportunity to hear other people's stories. And, and so I'm wondering, people who aren't in that college setting, who can't sit down the first 10 minutes of class, is there anything you've seen out of the people who, who can change those assumptions and rework their mental models, um, who just can't sit down in the classroom every single day? I think one thing we can all work on, and as we're celebrating holidays together and as we're kind of forming New Year's resolutions, this this could be a really good, simple resolution for all of us, is learning to ask better questions. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, college dorms and college classrooms can be a really good training ground for, but you can also just resolve to work on this in, uh, at the gym and with your family members. What do I mean by better questions? I think when we want to talk about religion or politics or morality, we just want to come in debating right away. So I say, you know, Sean, why do you still eat meat? It's clearly wrong. Tell me, like, why you hate animals so much. Those look like I just asked you a bunch of questions, but I didn't. I, like, I don't care what you say next. I have an assumption about what you believe, and I'm really just using the questions to kind of display my reasons or to put my reasons on the table. Those are pretty weak questions, like Socrates would roll over in his grave, even though he asked a lot of questions like that. Um, what are stronger questions? Questions where I genuinely don't know what you're going to say next, and I'm curious about the answer because that would shape how I would talk with you about whatever topic I think it's important that we learn to talk about. So instead of saying, hey, Sean, why do you still eat meat? Say, like, Sean, can you tell me a little bit about, like, what food means to you? Like, are you the kind of person that likes to cook? Do you have really happy memories around uh, preparing meals with your family? Or do you have like weird memories? Like where does like, where do your views about food come from? What's the most, like what's one formative event in your life so far that involves food? And that might seem like a really broad question that's never going to get us to this topic about um, helping each other figure out how we should treat animals. But it will, like that's part of these like baby steps of realizing first I got to have a sense about what kinds of experiences and ideas and philosophical principles that you might have become aware of over the course of your life that I just have never heard of before. And I'm coming at it from my own little like cave, my own set of experiences. If this conversation goes well and I'm willing to listen to you for a beat, then maybe you're willing to listen to me for a beat, tell you a little bit about some of the experiences that have helped me get to my view on this. And then if we're really going well, and these are, again, the kinds of conversations, you can have them spread out over time. You can have them like with somebody that you run with in the morning and just do like little pieces of it. But over time, maybe we get to the next phase, which is being able to have a conversation with each other about what might change our mind on these topics. Like how certain are you of this piece of philosophy that you've picked up over the course of living your life, but now maybe you want to question it a little bit. What would it take for you to change your mind? Or will you never change your mind? In which case, like, it's a good thing to know that this is one of the most important parts of your vision of the good life uh, that, you know, you'd never be willing to revise. And, and that'll help me probably become a better friend to you over time. Hmm. So learning to ask those kinds of like asking questions and the gut, the initial gut check is I want, I want to talk to somebody about this. 
a family member, a friend, somebody that I see a fair, fair bit. And I'm going to ask them initial questions that I don't know the answer to. I think that's very helpful. Uh, even just sparking like deeper, more meaningful conversations as opposed to just like hitting those surface level things. So I love that questions. I, I feel like are one of the things I wish people explored more, uh, because they add so much meaning to your own life, but also deep in the relationships with others. And I know we're gonna talk about relationships and love, which I'm really excited to talk about, but, but I would, I would love to know first, because you talk about like just understanding the person and I'm so curious. So some of your, your colleagues mentioned just like your work ethic and your drive is relentless and inspiring. And then just your, accomplishments are absolutely dizzying like it would take this entire podcast to mention all of the things you've done and then the number of roles you currently have so, so i'm hoping this can be like actually something we can all learn from like what is it about you that has allowed you to dive deeply on tasks but then also accomplish so much and inspire those around you to accomplish more i know it's a really broad and deep question and i'm hoping you're going to be not, not not too humble here i really hope we can learn from you um and what we can take away from that yeah, I mean, some of this is a, it's a subject of philosophical reflection for those of us who are kind of like mid-career, whose jobs are going well. You spend a lot of time thinking about why is this working or is this just luck and how much of this is a matter of control? I do a lot of philosophy about my job, my own job. I was thinking about that early this morning. Um, I think for me, first... And I was, I was, so a couple of days ago, I was down in Tennessee and I was meeting with a bunch of college students down there who are working on a project that's kind of like God in the good life for their campus. And we were at the end of the second day and we were just having coffee and cakes and they were asking, they were asking me what advice I had for them, especially because the, after this last year, they felt like they were really struggling with seeing a future or feeling like the good life was possible. They're just kind of beaten down. I don't know how you feel, Sean, but like the last two years, a lot of people have felt really beaten down, especially in their jobs. And having a dialogue with them, I think one thing I realized that's been very important to me since I was in college, and I would hope would stay really important to my current college students and those kids down in Tennessee, is realizing it's, it's wonderful to have big desires. Like I remember being an 18, 18 year old at the University of Virginia and thinking, I want to work for the very best law firm that would possibly hire me someday. I want to go to Yale or Harvard Law School and I want that kind of job. And then I want the kind of life that that kind of job will make possible. Those are like desires I felt really strongly when I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, and even though I didn't achieve, my life didn't take that direction. And I'm glad it didn't take that direction. Like I love my current job so much more than I would have loved that job. It was really good for me at that point in my life to realize that there are things I really wanted for the future and that I was the kind of person that was capable of really wanting and hoping for things because, and this gets into philosophy, like having, you know, you start up those kind of fires within yourself. And then as long as you're open-minded and discerning and you're looking for opportunities and you're asking yourself constantly this question about whether it's pointed the right direction, that's what's going to drive you to go forward. And, and you should, we should be very nervous and we should be trying to help each other when we feel like that fire is going out. Um, when you look at an 18 year old and they, they might, they don't even have like the crazy dreams anymore. That's rough. Or when I look at colleagues or people I work with, and I think they, you know, they, they have a hard time listing what they'd be really excited about achieving next year. That's, that's not great. Um, and that maybe comes as surprising maybe for a philosopher, especially a philosopher with a religious background like me, to say that you should have these 
drives um, because philosophy is usually pretty critical of some of the goals that we set for ourselves. They tell us these goals are shallow. Uh, and oftentimes we discover over time that they are, that that's not what gives us the good life. That's not what completes us. But to get at the really good, deep goals um, and to really be the kind of people that we want to be, we have to start where we're at with with some of with like the drives that we've currently have and the desires that we currently have. So I, I think one thing I've been really proud of about the way that I've made hard decisions over the course of the last like 20 years of my adult life is I've always kind of honored those desires and tried to use, use philosophy and use the opportunities that I found myself in to, to like elevate them and always like shoot for things that are higher or more important, but not be dismissive or, um, uh, or willing to give up on them. I think one people always want the like really practical advice. I think, especially cause I write about the good life and I write about uh, time and rationality. People always want to know my time management strategies. I have to like go to all these workshops at work too, about like time management and work-life balance. And here I'll just be honest with you and your listeners. I am horrible at work-life balance. I don't know how other people say this, but like, I don't, work and life just are one huge, like smeary cloud for me. Um, and I'm, I'm very disciplined during the daytime, like between eight and five, because I collaborate and I have so many, um, people who are depending on me and so many group projects with running a research Institute and with teaching a big class. Uh, I have to be really careful about my schedule and have to be on time and prepared for meetings that are crammed in like Tetris blocks during the day. But then like when I get done with work, I am not very disciplined at all about my time. I'll kind of spend a couple of hours doing philosophy projects really slowly or like taking a long meandering walk or promising somebody I'd finish a project for them and then taking five times as long as I probably should have. I, I enjoy and I've realized this since I was a grad student. I enjoy having a portion of every day where I am just kind of like zoning out and, and working on things, but really inefficiently. I think it drives, it drives some of my friends and family members crazy because I'll want to have a conversation with them and they'll be assuming that it's like a 20 to 25 minute check-in. And I'll really want the conversation if it's in the evening to go on for like two hours <laughs> and to be a little bit meandering and pointless. And I think that that throws them for a loop. So I'm a, I'm also a big fan of, uh, of noticing the kinds of inefficiencies in your life that make you really happy. <laughs> uh, and for, for me, there's a, uh, I take a great deal of joy in work. And sometimes that means being really like, we're going to get X, Y, and Z done really fast and really efficiently. But sometimes it means just kind of like languishing in a project. One of the things you were mentioning at the beginning of this that's just so deeply troubling to me is we're talking about like a lot of people are feeling bogged down and, and not having like this deeper connection or, or bigger meaning. And I, I know even in the book you mentioned the 70s, it was 80% of college freshmen said one of their most important goals was to find a, a more meaningful and purposeful life. And then in 2018, it was down to 42%. And 80% said their goal was, was just to make money, become rich, something like that. And like, that's just so deeply troubling. Like I have two young kids and kind of like thinking about like what they're going to be growing up in. And then obviously like even what we're living today. I would just love to hear you unpack like why you think that is and then what the future looks like um, if we have an entire generation and that's kind of what their aspirations are. It's such an interesting question. I actually got those statistics from a psychology professor who was here at our institute last year. Um, her name's Sarah Conrath, and she just wrote a book about burnout. And she so she's done a lot of these like meta analyses of what's going on with young people. And it is super sad. 
I, you know, my initial temptation is to say, well, young people, these young college students are feeling this kind of nihilism because the world is in such a rough spot right now. And they're just responding to the kind of world that they're going to live out their lives in. But that can't be true, right? I mean, if you like go in the Wayback Machine to the 60s and 70s, that was a pretty rough time to be a young person as well. Uh, The Vietnam War is raging. So a lot of your classmates are going um, to fight in this like deadly battle. We didn't understand what exactly the purpose of it was. There were mad, massive protests on college campuses back then. There was the threat of nuclear war that was kind of hanging over everybody's heads. So it's not the case that like the world has made it harder for young people in the United States to, to want the good life. I mean, it's just always been hard during all of our lifetimes to to figure out how you're going to live your life and what's really worth wanting. I think the change has got to be the the a combination of the messages that we've been sending them about what they can hope for, like what's possible in their lives, and also the ways that we've set up high schools and colleges and the kinds of structures that they engage in, where they just don't have time to think about anything else. So one. One take I have, and I was, I've been very moved by having my youngest brother go through college and early adulthood. I'm, I'm the oldest kid in our family. My parents had children every seven and a half, eight years of their marriage. So I'm 15 years older than my baby brother, Connor. And Connor just graduated from Brown. And watching what he had to go through as a high school student at a big public high school in Florida to try to gain access to a really good college and to get funding for it. I mean, he had to basically work an 80 hour week since he was 15 years old to try to get access to this opportunity, which is no joke, an incredibly important opportunity for a, a young person. And then when he got to college, he had a lot more freedom to choose majors and to choose his classes and to choose who he wanted to be friends with, but he didn't have a lot of guidance for how to make those choices. And that had its own kind of really intense stress because, you know, you've got it when you're, when you're 19, 20 years old, you're putting all these bets on the table that are going to shape the decisions that you make down the road. Like you decide, I really desire, I love this idea of going to law school. So I'm going to put all my eggs in the pre-law basket, which is really demanding. And then you start to like work towards that goal. If you don't have ballast, you don't have people talking with you all along the way about whether or not that's still a great goal for you and how that's going to fit with other things that you're going to want out of your life. Then, you you know, you hit those roadblocks, you get a bad grade on an econ exam, or you realize the summer between your second and third year, you don't really want to be a lawyer. Uh, That can be totally derailing. And then, you know, it's hard for you to want other things after that. So I think we've set up this kind of these systems that promise young people they're going to give them the good life. And they're going to, you know, if, if they just clear this next hurdle, they're going to be happy. And young people get really good at clearing those hurdles, but that's a why. I mean, not the, the, the kind of pre-professional systems that we've set up are not going to make them happy. Uh, a lot of the courses we teach them in college are not going to ultimately like help them make them happy. They're just going to be stepping points in this bigger goal that they're trying to figure out. And I think we don't talk enough about that journey either anymore with college students anymore. Or, or if we do, we do it at like new student orientation or we do it with the brochures that we give them and their parents. But when it comes time to actually prove that 
college leaders that um, they're, you're their first bosses when they start their first jobs really care about them developing in this way. We, we don't often live up to our aspirations to care for and mentor them. Hmm. How do you define the good life? Eudaimonia. Did you read the book, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> we have a, philosophers have invented a technical <laughs> term to convince you that we know the answer to this question. Uh, I, I am... I read Aristotle when I was a junior in college. That was, I actually made it pretty far into college before I actually learned that much about uh, the Greeks and this part of the history of philosophy. But Aristotle ha- has his class that he taught at the Lyceum 2,400 years ago, where he was working with his students on this question, what will it take for us to lead happy lives or to be happy people? And he spends the first couple chapters of the book that captures this class on this question about what it, what exactly is it that we're aiming at? He gives this analogy of if you're, uh, you might be the world's best archer, but if you don't have a sense of where the target is, you're, the whole activity is pointless. Like the, even the aiming is, is pointless. So he talks about the goal of our lives being this thing he calls eudaimonia, which is like a state of being a person who's developed all of her functions or his functions as a human being. Like it's been the kind of thing that they were meant to be. Everything in Aristotle's universe has a function. So, you know, a knife can be a better or worse knife. It can be better if it's really sharp. It can be worse if it's really dull. And if it gets to the point where it can't cut anything at all, then it's, it's pointless, literally and figuratively. It's not even a knife. Aristotle thinks maybe harshly, controversially in the history of philosophy, that humans have a function. And it's a function that for him is determined by what makes us special among all of the animals, the fact that we're rational and social, and that when our lives are going really well, we're fulfilling this like rational, social, animal part of our nature. The same way like a wolf's life is going really well if it's able to hunt and able to reproduce and live in a pack really well. And Aristotle thinks one of the things that separates us also from other animals is that we can worry about whether we're, we're being good humans. Wolves don't lose a lot of sleep over whether they suck at being a wolf, but we, we like wonder about this all the time. We read advice. We listen to podcasts about the good life um, because we're constantly asking these questions about like an archer is trying to steer, like trying to find the bullseye. We're always trying to fine tune and, uh, and look for whether or not we need a direction change. I think the good life is the goal of that kind of searching. And when it's going really well, the place that we are hopefully going to end up at the end of our lives. It's a little bit morbid to talk about the goal of our life being something that we'll achieve around the time that we die. Aristotle was also very worried about this. Like, you know, it's kind of a dark view of philosophy. Like the good, he has this line that he takes from Salon where he's like, you know, maybe we won't know if anybody's happy until they've already died on this approach. Um, And there's a dark way of looking at that, but there's also this, I think, really affirming way of thinking about this idea of the good life. It's something that I'm aiming at over the course of my whole life. And it's the kind of goal that has all of these intermediate chapters, having a great job, being an excellent member of my family, being an excellent friend, being a friend sometimes to different people, right? Because our friendship friendships change over the course of our life. None of those are eudaimonia, like the good life, the final thwack, like the arrow hitting the target. 
but they're all these course corrections that are getting me closer to that target. And as those phases of my life end, as I, you know, when I retire someday, um, if you have children and they grow up and they, your children move out of the house and you've completed the parenthood phase of life, it's a good thing that wasn't your comprehensive goal for human happiness because then you'd have nothing left to look forward to. And the nice thing about Aristotle's conception of the good life is it's always like, you know, there, there's always kind of a, a bigger, more comprehensive goal that's going to be waiting for you to, to point at it. I, I know the Stokes have really focused on just really virtues as opposed to all these other things that, that we should just avoid. And I'm wondering your take on that. Should we focus solely on the virtues? And, and if so, like, how do you even look at virtues today? During the first phase of the pandemic, and I don't know where you are, Sean, but I'm at the, I'm at the point now where I talk about like the chapters of the pandemic in my life. <laughs> During the first chapter of the pandemic, that March, when we sent all of our college students home from school and we were doing like Zoom classes and we were all baking bread all the time, if you remember, alone in our houses. I read so much stoicism. We have, we all have this kind of like philosophy that's on deck to help us in whatever particular crisis we're facing in our life. And I turned to Marcus Aurelius and like Epictetus. And those were the guys that I really wanted to read in the first phase of the pandemic. And, and I think part of it was that the, there are philosophers that give you counseling when you don't have control anymore or when you feel like you've got to find something that's really good about your life, but there's so much that's outside of your control. A global pandemic is definitely outside of your control. I find that in these moments when my life is really turbulent or it's very hard to see the future, stoicism really has its appeal because it says, look, even if... Um, even if there's so much in your life that you can't predict what will happen next, you still have what you care about, like your innermost desires. You still have the kind of person that you aspire to be and are trying to be. And all of those goals are going to be affected by your circumstances, but you always have the choice of making your circumstances work to, to your growth and advantage. And so I think that certainly in times where we find ourselves, our lives really disrupted, uh, or just it's really, really hard to see the future, uh, stoicism has its attractions. Of course, those periods of like feeling helpless or not having control, those also go away. Like, you know, then you hit the second or third phase of the pandemic when you're like, man, I have a lot of choices that I can make that could shape the kind of world that we live in. Um, and that my, the kind of person that I am could make a difference to the kinds of circumstances that I face. And I feel, you know, when you feel more empowered, stoicism starts to feel a little bit like it doesn't have enough to offer you because the Stokes are constantly telling you like, don't, don't worry about your current situation. Don't pay attention to the way that fate is shifting your life around right now. And just, just turn inward and focus on yourself. Sometimes you got to pay attention to the opportunities that like fate is throwing your way and, and, the way that that's shaping the story that you're telling in your life right now. So, and I feel like I'm in a period of my life right now where the, you know, the pandemic's ending and the world is, the world is like changing really rapidly. Colleges, the kinds of places where I uh, spend most of my time are going through this period of massive change. And rather than feeling like that's all outside of my control, I like the kind of philosophy, the kinds of virtue ethics that say, look, that, you know, you're going to be part of one character in this story of all of these changes that are happening. And you should feel like you want to pay really close attention to what's going on in the world right now and see if you can possibly shift things a little bit, nudge them a direction that you think is good or bad. And so, 
in periods where you feel a little bit more agency, I think stoicism, stoicism fades a little bit and you get much more interested in virtue ethicists like Plato, who Plato was always involved in Athenian affairs and getting mixed up and had views about how good people would be involved in their, um, in their government. And, and I, I think that <clears throat> rambling a little bit, but uh, when, when the life of action keys up, we, we should, uh, we should be ready for it. Stoicism might close us off. No, no, no. I, I really appreciate the insights. This is, this might be a little bit nuanced, but but I'm always intrigued by people who have deep understanding of certain things. So you mentioned pandemic hits. You, you focus more on Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. And so I think a lot of people hearing that who who might not, and maybe the case is for you that, hey, you just, you open up the book, page one, but is, is it different for you? Like, ha, have you gone through, obviously you've gone through Aurelius and Epictetus before. Do you have like specific phrases or passages you've kept that when hard times hit, you dive immediately into those? Or are you just kind of picking up the book and just going through it? I am a huge fan of what I call like garbage disposal reading. <laughs> I think I think a lot of folks approach these really old texts kind of, you know, like, like they have to read the whole thing from beginning to end and they have to pause and ruminate to understand anytime they start to get confused or they don't know the context. And that means a lot of folks never get to read really great philosophy. Uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, buy these books, have them around your house and when you feel like, you know, the need, if you're, if you get sent home from work from pandemic and it's a, like, you know, 5 PM, 6 PM, and you're looking to waste some time while dinner cooks, like pick up the book and just start like, you know, start reading the thing that most intrigues you or calls you into it and, uh, and go until you get bored and then stop and read something else. Philosophy. If you're going to be a philosophy PhD student, if you're one of my graduate students, read the whole book, yeah. I'm going to test on it. <laughs> But if you're somebody that just wants to enjoy philosophy, a lot of philosophy was meant to be taken off in these little pieces and then digested and debated. So if you read, uh, if you try to pick up a book by Mencius or Confucius or by one of the great Stoics like Marcus Aurelius, at first you might be totally freaked out because it doesn't, they don't read like essays. They don't have like an introduction that tells you, here's what I'm going to explain to you about the good life in this book. And then they go through, I mean, that, that form didn't exist when they were writing those books. Instead, they have a bunch of little like sayings and passages and snippets. Marcus Aurelius, the, he opens up the meditation by introducing you to a bunch of his friends and family members and what he thinks about them. <laughs> That's where he starts the book. And you're thinking, well, what's the point in this? For Marcus, it was, you know, read and, you know, he would go back and read through his journals or think about his journals till he found whichever friendship he really wanted to spend time thinking about that day. And the journal was a reminder, a note for him to think more deeply about something that was going to be part of his like conversation and thought process. Same with like Confucius and Mencius, you read their books and I put books in scare quotes here because they were never meant to be books. They're all of these passages that really gifted teachers would use as reminders or notes to start to have conversations about these topics with their students. But they were meant to be conversation starters, like just little pieces that you take and use to inspire your own philosophy. Um, and philosophy is meant to be consumed that way. I also think that religious, many religious texts are meant to be consumed that way. It made a huge difference for me. I, I, um, became a Catholic in college and I was extremely intimidated by reading books about Catholicism when I was that age, cause they were just way too hard and I didn't really understand the context and I didn't get anything out of them. And then I felt dumb and I felt like I was a bad person. 
And then one of the things that really helped me was starting to buy like paperback translations of different parts of the Bible that felt like just random. They felt just like normal books. They didn't have gilded edges. They didn't have like super thin pieces of paper that felt magic. They were just books and you could pick them up and you could think about them and, and, and like, you know, think about whether you thought the story was interesting or who you related to in the, in the story. And if it got bored, you could skip ahead. And realizing that you could consume it that way meant that it became part of my inner life and it became things that I would remember and make connections with. And if you do that with the with Marcus Aurelius the first time you read him in peacetime, then when the pandemic hits, you think like, I remember Marcus Aurelius wrote a lot about baking bread and I'm baking a lot of bread these days. And I would like, you know, a philosophical approach to all this bread baking during the pandemic. And you can go back and go into the book and pull more of what's good about it. So I think it's like just kind of reading around and not worrying, not worrying so much even about whether you're doing it right. Again, if you get to pass a qualifying exam for a philosophy PhD, then you should worry a lot about whether you're doing it right. But if you're somebody who just wants to enjoy philosophy, gather up these books, read through them until you get bored, then pick up new things and, and let your kind of curiosity and your conscience guide you through the material that's going to be helpful. And, and over time, you're going to get more accurate by just, you know, continuing to read and by having conversations with other people, hmm. by listening to podcasts too, by, you know, by letting more stuff kind of feed into your system. You mentioned letting the curiosity guide you, but then also like that, that connection with the material. So yeah. one of the things I'm really in awe of Megan is, I mean, you created this course at Notre Dame, God in the Good Life, that just connects so deeply. I mean, has connected with thousands and thousands of students and, and that has led to, to, to your new book. But I'm curious, like at the start of like what spurred you to create this course and at the outset, did, did you have any idea it would connect this deeply with people? Definitely did not know at the outset that it would be this, uh, this successful. I think well, what happened for me is I'd been teaching at Notre Dame for a few years. I've been teaching our really big introduction to philosophy class. And Notre Dame, like a lot of Catholic schools, makes every single student take introduction to philosophy. But if you asked us why, you'd get a million different answers from across my department about why students need to know philosophy. I've been thinking a lot about that question because I was teaching the really big auditoriums. I was teaching a lot of freshmen the intro class. I was like, what are we doing here? I remember I pulled my students one year and I asked at the first day of class, how many of you guys could imagine being a philosophy major? And the final result was like 2% of the students in this large auditorium could even imagine being a philosophy major. I mean, I could imagine being a toaster. <laughs> I can imagine like becoming president of the United States. Imagination is such a low threshold for thinking about something as a possibility. And 98% of my students didn't even think about it as a possibility. So realizing like we're spending 14 weeks with these students, they're not going to be me when they grow up, which is probably good. Uh, but I want to give them something that's going to be really valuable no matter what they do next. And I, you know, I always taught Aristotle, you get to the second chapter of Aristotle's book about the good life, the Nicomachean ethics. And he pauses for his students. And he says, we are not undertaking this examination. We're not taking this class so that we can know what virtue is so that we can be able to like define all of Plato's philosophy terms but rather so we can be happy. Otherwise, there's no benefit in this. And I just remember I used to give that as a quiz question to my students. What does Aristotle mean here? And what he means is that the good life is not something that you get by just learning a bunch of philosophy facts. It's something that you learn by developing this capacity to see yourself in the world that philosophers like Aristotle thought that they taught people how to do. 
So I remember being like fired up about that and thinking, what, when did we kind of lose faith that in college students could start to develop a different way of seeing themselves and seeing the world as a result of our classes, rather than just repeating out a bunch of philosophy debates of dead people in history. And I, you know, I started thinking about that really seriously as a course design problem. Like we know, we just don't even set that out as a goal. So of course we never achieve it, but what would happen if we just told students the first day of class, I want you to be happier people at the end of this class. And here's the kind of happiness that I think is possible for humans. And here's how we're going to try to do it. And if we fail, that's going to be really interesting. So that was one part of it was just really, you know, I'm a true believer in philosophy and I've always like really believed in that, but wanted to try it out on my own students, the way Aristotle did on his. Another thing that, uh, turned out to be really magical about how we set up the class. And this comes out a lot in the book that my colleague Paul and I wrote. I'm a total news junkie. Like I told you, I waste a lot of time in the evenings. One of the things that I waste hours on is reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and uh, Harvard Business Review. I just will go down the like rabbit hole of wanting to consume as much news as possible. My dad was a cameraman for the local news station when I was in high school. And I think that's where I caught it. But one of the things I've been thinking about for years and years is when I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, I see philosophy everywhere, like people making philosophical stands that are crazy or that are well justified or that are really good examples of something that people were worried about in the Enlightenment. And I you know, have a huge folder in my computer called Philosophically Interesting News Stories that I just save them as I see them and realizing I wanted to do something with that. Like I wanted students... To, uh, to not just think that these questions and issues were ones that people dealt with in the medieval period or in the Enlightenment or in ancient Greece, but they're problems that we are all still dealing with right now. And that if they know a little bit of philosophy, maybe they're going to see moves that other people are not seeing, or they'll understand something a couple levels deeper. And so started having this, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of news articles in that folder and realizing we could start to build the class around that. Um, and using my knowledge and my colleagues' knowledge of philosophy as like prescriptions for these problems that are unfolding this week. Uh, and that's a weird way to design a philosophy class. You know, you might think that, it, it, well, one thing, you have to change the class every semester if you're going to take that approach, because there's always more news. There's always like life is always throwing more stuff at us to do philosophy about. And I think we realized that that was kind of exciting and that we were up for that challenge. But it also means that you're never going to take a class like this, work really hard on it, and then crystallize it in amber and just have it be the, a perfect static thing for the rest of time. Yeah, you mentioned creating that course. It was, it was all around course design, system design. And then obviously, yeah. of course, you're going to launch it and you're, you're learning from certain things that didn't work well, things that did. How different is the course today than that first course you launched? I get this question a lot. And we've got it. There, My colleagues, Paul Blaschko and Justin Christie, some of my other Notre Dame colleagues like Brian Cutter and Laura Callahan, there are a lot of philosophers that work on the class with us. And anytime we add somebody to the core team, it mutates and evolves because there are new philosophers with their new hot takes and insights that are going to be part of creating the culture of the class. And then obviously we hire a lot of students to be involved in building the class with us and students change faster than anybody else, like their tastes and what they think is really important. Um, that That's something that we're always trying to respond to. The core vision of the class 
what I just like, we, we have this right up front on the syllabus on the internet. We have designed this class so that in 14 weeks, you can start to answer big questions about what it will take for you to lead a happy life. That has been constant throughout. I think we got, uh, you know, we had raised eyebrows when we first announced that we were doing this and well, people didn't think that yeah. we were that serious. Oh, we got a lot of raised yeah. eyebrows. Um, but we were like, no, seriously, we're going to teach a class that's going to try to make 18, 19 year olds a lot happier and happier in this like enduring philosophical sense. And if we fail, we're going to own it. Like if our students end up nihilists or end up having bad lives as a result of this class, that's going to be really interesting evidence for the future of philosophy. Um, we change up the assignments all the time. The, the core assignment has remained relatively stable. We've learned how to teach people how to do it in more effective ways. Like we've changed our tactics, but the vision of the class is that at the end of that week 14, every student who's taking the class will have written this thing we call a philosophical apology, which is uh, stories from their life so far and philosophical arguments and reasons that are explaining how they are, they're finding that goal for their life right now. So we ask them questions like, are you going to practice any religion as an adult or like going forward? And we try to dig in, okay, well, what is, what, like, what's your experience or lack of experience with religion so far in your life right now? Who, which figures that we've studied you identify with or you don't identify with? What are your reasons? What are you going to say to Nietzsche? What are you going to say to Aquinas? Um, and students work on that essay and they try to develop it. And one of the things that we've noticed teaching this course to thousands of Notre Dame students is the first semester or two that we taught the class, getting students to understand the value of that assignment, it was kind of hard. They're like, what is this? Can I just write an essay? Can I just write an essay about like Aquinas' arguments? I'm like, no, this is about you, your vision of the good life. And they, they had a little bit of a difficult time grappling what we were asking from them. And of course, like I, I said at the beginning of this interview, they really want to please us. So they right. really want more than anything to understand what we want them to write rather than what they ought to be writing. But once we had a couple of generations of iterations of Notre Dame students successfully do that assignment and really love it, then we had examples, like examples in other students' lives where you could say, look at what, look at what Sam Kennedy did. Like his essay, yes, it's an incredibly moving essay about how he's thinking about what family life and religion are going to mean to him going forward. Like you could have an essay that's like Sam's, except it's yours and it has your own weird stories behind it. And, the, and once they saw examples, they were like, oh, this is going to be really cool. And now that assignment is really easy for us to, um, to, to help students complete because there's this whole culture that does a bunch of the kind of quiet educating around it here at Notre Dame. We're always messing with the midterm assignment. We oscillate between like, should we teach them how to do debates? Should we teach them how to um, do massive group projects? For a couple of years, we experimented with this assignment where we asked them all to, to do some direct action that brought the good life to Notre Dame. And that assignment was really fun, but also sometimes went totally off the rails and got us in trouble. <laughs> so, well, there's definitely a culture of experimentation around the class, but the big vision and the core assignment, that has been part of like the DNA. That's been the battery for it ever since we started. Hmm. So it's so much, Megan, I would love to dive into. One, one of the things I want to make a mental note of that we dive back into is just having models and role models. But I would love to know, you mentioned writing this essay here, the apology essay. How important and what is the impact of storytelling and contemplation for our own lives? I think that's like one of the key things there that that essay gets out of everyone. I think that learning to tell better, more accurate stories about why we are the people that we are and being able to share that with other people, this is part of the core of a good life. 
And I, again, I believe that philosophically, but over the course of the last few years, one of the things that my co-author Paul and I did when we tried to take the God and the Good Life course and translate it into a book is we we really worked through a bunch of the assignments that we had been giving to our Notre Dame students to help them work on telling the stories of their life. And we wrote out the answers in our life. And we include little snippets of this in the book to just try to kind of put our money where our mouth is. We say that this works, but have we really tried it? And that has been transformative for each of us. I think that we, you know, we thought that we were well-established, happy adults. And then, you know, I took on the assignment a year ago of thinking about what money means to me, a question that we've given, you know, tons of Notre Dame students, but I'd never sat down and tried to write out my answer. And thinking about that required me to think a lot about the sacrifices that my parents made for us when we were kids. And when we started to realize that those were sacrifices and how much time I spend at work and how much I'm willing to do to get a raise and what does it mean to get a raise and why don't I give more money to charity and how exactly do I pick charities? Those, you know, it's easy to talk about that really theoretically. It is extremely hard for most of us, most of my adult friends to say, this is how much money I think I need to make to be a happy person. And this is how much I'm willing to sacrifice in my current life to support these particular people that I feel I owe something to. Being willing to put that down, certainly in our case, being willing to then share it very publicly was really hard. It made me feel really vulnerable, but also made me realize which kinds of moral values were really central to me and which kinds of things I, I just said, I'd say to people really mattered to me, but I was never really willing to make a sacrifice to enact. So, you know, being able to know what your moral, what your morality is for me meant dealing with a lot of these questions about how the simple thing I interact with every day, money affects, has affected a bunch of other decisions that I'm willing to make or not make. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't, you can't get at that abstractly. You got to get into the kind of person that the kind of person that you're aspiring to be in your self image and what it means for you to love other people in your family and what it means to think that the world has hope in it. If you, if you directed your energies towards something else. And, and those are all things that you, you really start to understand through storytelling and by sharing those stories. I think it was also profoundly important for me to start to write out my answers to those questions. And first I'd show them to Paul and Paul would show me the questions that he was working on and be like, yeah, that really sounds like you. Or sometimes if you got a good philosophy friend, like I do and my co-author I'd show him a story and he'd be like, this is propaganda. (laughs) Like you're not really like this. Like you don't really like we have in the chapter on love. I talk a lot about loving my parents and what it means to love them and and loving family members can be extraordinarily hard. And I remember like having a couple of early drafts with Paul and he's like, you're making yourself out to be like the hero in all of these transactions. And they're always the ones that are making mistakes, but that's definitely not, I know your parents, that's not true. And so being also like learning from your friends and your loved ones who you do philosophy with how to tell better stories about yourself. Uh, I think that that's a huge part of how you start to figure out what this eudaimonia, what this good life goal is that you're aiming at. Yeah. You, you mentioned the friendships, family, and, and, and love. 
I, I found it myself. I, I have a few close friends that, that we do that. We explore like these super deep things and then we, we question each other really deeply. And I, I mean, I've, I've just said that again and again, that is without a doubt the best use of my time in terms of understanding myself better is that deep connection with a friendship where we can explore each other. Um, it, it's just so helpful. So I, I just want to highlight that. And I know the book really highlights that and I just appreciate that. One of the things you also talk about I'm really intrigued by are, are the goalless activities, right? Like you even mentioned at the beginning, all of your students, it's like, we, we, we just want to look good for the professor. We want to check this box. And I'm wondering how you approach goalless activities. I mean, it's one of the things that's been really fun trying to teach this is this is one of the most confusing and hard problems in the history of philosophy. This idea of, are there um, things that are good about our lives that we can't do anything to maximize or promote or or like, what would it be for something to be good if it's not the kind of thing that you could always be aiming at like an archer? Um, This is something Plato and Aristotle had like a famous huge breakup over exactly this topic. It's hard to, because it's hard to even conceptualize what it would be. This is another area where the pandemic just helped me realize Thing, aspects of philosophy that I had only ever dealt with theoretically before, but realized how visceral they are. Hmm. So one of the things that happened for me last year, and there's been a subject of much philosophical reflection in my life ever since then, is I went from being a hyper scheduled person that could, you know, I could always tell you what I'm doing next week, what I'm doing next month. I'm going to go to Scotland and I'm going to give this lecture and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to conquer this, this goal or whatever. All those just got wiped off the table. And really suddenly, like over the course of just a few days, I remember they canceled the Olympics and then suddenly all of my schedule just got wiped out. And I had to deal with this, like who, what does it mean to be a great person to be a really great version of myself if I don't know when these activities are coming back or what it will even mean for them to come back. And I thought, ah, this is maybe what, you know, Plato was talking about when he talked about like the life of contemplation of just like, this is the, the, the stuff we've got left to think about or the Stoics, the stuff that's left to think about when all of the activities are put on pause. Um, what do I still find like good? And those are the kind the goalless activities are the, the times you spend thinking this is what's really wonderful about my life that doesn't have anything that's not going to end. It doesn't have a deadline. Um, it's not the kind of thing that I could log on my CV, um, but it's still really good. And, and if I look for it, I, I, it's goodness can be more accessible to me. Okay. Well, what are examples of that? One my and I learned about this quite a bit actually from my colleague Paul. He's got he's got three young kids, and during the pandemic, he said one of the places where he started to find this kind of goalless goodness was just taking walks with his kids. Like he would just go out um, it, in South Bend in the spring. You go from like horrible cold snow to suddenly all the trees are blooming. And he remembers this day of like, you know, there was nothing to do at work because everything had been canceled. So he just took this really long walk with his three-year-old and they stopped and looked at all the leaves. And he realized like all the other things I do in my life are for moments like this and just pause and realize like this, this is the, the value being realized. It's why I work so hard. So like, let's just like sit here with it and like, let the value be realized in my life right now. 
I, I, I think about this. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just love that approach because so many people, like when that moment is, is there, it's right in front of us. We automatically are like, not, not even like we're trying to jump to the next thing. And I have young kids. So like the same thing too, right? Like we can forget about the phone, all those other things. It's just like just watching the kid fully immersed in like running or jumping on a tree is just like the most beautiful thing um, that you can have in your life. And we're so quick to jump to that next thing. I just think it's important. I think that's a, that's a refresher to other people that, you know what, when we have those moments, it might be a beautiful sunset, something like that. Like pause, enjoy that. Like that's more about the good life. Oh, definitely. And I think even when like the stress comes back. So there's, there's how you enjoy this when you have time off or, or when like activity is low, then there's also how you find this kind of goalless value when everything's really busy and super stressful. Like you're a new parent or work is going full steam. And one of the, one of the things philosophy gives us is uh, advice about how to find it when, when it's not just happening innately. Hmm. So I can remember I went to get my flu shot two weeks ago and it was just like the busiest day ever. And I was waiting in this huge long line of face masked people to go get a shot and thinking just like, Oh my gosh, I'm so stressed. But I'm, I'm in the line and thinking, you know what? I'm so glad, like how cool to just like be alive, you know, how cool to like have conscious existence right now. Um, and even though I'm waiting in line and I don't exactly know what's going to happen next, or I feel like I've got all these goals ahead of me today, but none of them are really, uh, making me feel excited right now. I can still pause and say, you know, even with all the stress for today, how amazing like that I am getting this time to be alive right now. It sounds like a hippie insight, but it's the kind of thing that we all often do have to actively remind ourselves of. And, and one thing philosophy is good at is pointing out goals that we kind of miss if we're not paying attention. One goal or source of value in life is just the fact like that we're alive. Like, oh my gosh, I'm a healthy person. I'm about to go get this technology injected into my arm. And how, just, I don't know how neat that it's like a Monday and that I'm, I'm here to experience it. Um, and learning how to like actually notice that it gives us just a little bit more, uh, a little bit more power to get through the, 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 the busier periods when we don't have time to appreciate it. Megan, the problem problem with conversations like this is I, I could literally spend the entire day just asking you some of these deep questions. I, I know I need to be respectful of your time here. Um, one thing I, I do want to hit on, though, is, is I'm wondering, you, you mentioned role models multiple times and just the impact that that's studying those who, who've been there before or deep insights. Like, what have you you learned about the importance of that and the impact it has? We've talked a little bit about Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics today, um, and on the question of role models or just other people in our lives, he has coincidentally been one of my favorite philosophers. I mentioned that he starts off the meditations by just going through these particular people in his life and what he's learned from observing their life. Um, and he talks about teachers that he's had, but he also talks about friends. He talks about admiring this one friend who had horrible, horrible luck, like just everything seemed to go wrong for this guy. And he dealt it with it with such dignity. Um, and they just noticed that Marcus noticed that about his friend, that his friend just like could deal with suffering with dignity and, and aspired to be that kind of person. I think it's an amazing practice for us, especially, you know, in the wintertime as we kind of pivot into a new year to not think about our goals and resolutions really abstractly, but to be able to go through these lists and to think, okay, this professor that I had in college, 
he taught me how to debate with style. Like the thing I most admired about him was that not only would he present a really hard argument clearly, but he did it with such like joy and panache. And I would like to be the kind of person that has like that dimension of his life in my life this year. Or you think about my, um, my brother who dealt with a lot of unemployment last year and kind of like Marcus Aurelius's friend dealt with it with like such dignity um, and was always there for his wife and was always really open about what was happening, but also kept hope going and, and like thinking, I noticed that about him. Maybe I'll even have the courage to say that to him. Sometimes it's hard to tell people why you admire them or love them, but at the very least like notice and reflect on it and think like, that's a real life with somebody dealing with their own real circumstances where there was something really wonderful or good that came out of it. And I can want to try for my life to be part of that. So making it particular specific to people that are, um, that are in your life and trying to be really like honest and concrete about what it is that you admire in them, that those are the kinds of insights that the Stoics knew. And I, and I think I'm starting to understand are, are going to be lasting you know, the opposite of that is to say, I, uh, I just like completely admire Taylor Swift, which I do. She had, you know, she's killing it right now. I love how famous she is and how she seems to be just resiliently famous, but there's nothing like, I, you know, I don't know why that's working for her. It's a mystery for me. I don't, it's not like close enough to my own situation for it to be really instructive for how I'm living my life. So I can, I can like have her as my hero, but she's not really going to be like my philosophical guide the way some of those other people would be. It but was, she is my hero. <laughs> it was funny. I was spending some time with your your upcoming book, The Good Life Method, this morning, and actually came yeah. across that exercise. And I, I I put that in my personal notes of do this, like literally think about some of the people, friends, other teachers, things like that, and, and what did you learn from? What do you admire about them? Uh, I, I just really appreciate that exercise. Uh, I'm wondering for you, Megan, if you could do this, like long form conversation. Uh, I know there's a lot of those models you look towards, and, and you could just have a deep conversation with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend. Who would you just love asking some of these questions of? Ooh, this is a really good question. So I am a huge, this is this will sound like it just counteracts what I said about Taylor Swift because it's another celebrity. But I, I'm i a huge admirer of Pope Francis. Hmm. I, I, he, he lives a life that is just so different from mine. Um, right, like he... Uh, he has this humongous, complicated, deeply aspirational, but super screwed up church that he has to lead that's distributed all around the world. And everybody's looking to him for guidance. He also uh, has to understand this really messy 2,000-year-old religion that's changed a lot over time and is, is going through a period of really rapid change right now. Every time I hear him like speak or reflect, I'm always surprised. Like I never quite saw that coming in a way that makes him really intriguing to me. He's somebody that's clearly like thinking about the whole scope of his life and our lives in, in human history. So he's got a really big expansive notion of what's uh, worth going after. And he's definitely got his own, uh, his own take on it, which Every time I get a little glimpse into it, like I'll like read a letter that he writes or hear about one of his press conferences, 
he's somebody that I just always have a bunch of questions for. Like, why did you say that? Um, or like, you know, where is this coming from? Or what experience are you drawing from? So I would really love to have a conversation about the good life with him. He's got a ton of integrity. I think he also puts his money where his mouth is. He's very much trying to live out the kind of life that he would hope for the rest of us. Um, but he's dealing with problems that are ones that are so much bigger in scope than the ones that I've ever encountered. So I feel like he's somebody that could learn a lot from. Um Taylor Swift would also be pretty yeah. cool. Again, I've got a lot of, how does she do it? <laughs> um, who, what are, who is those songs about? I have a lot of questions about like who broke her heart. Um, and I think I, I'll say this. I think of uh, a big part of, a big part of enjoying philosophy and sticking with these conversations is realizing sometimes they're extraordinarily serious. You know, when you're talking with loved ones about end of life questions, those are going to be really serious conversations. But a lot of times philosophy is just like fun and funny and weird and surprising. And we enjoy having these conversations about um, our religious lives and our moral lives a lot more when we can let our guard down a little bit, and just realize that a lot of it is funny and surprising and we don't quite know what we're doing and we're trying to figure it out with each other and we keep getting curveballs. Hmm. And so, you know, realizing that you see these big existential questions in in funny and surprising places. And, and part of the good life is, uh, is recognizing those dimensions of it. And so, so being willing, I'd love to talk philosophy with Taylor Swift or somebody in a really silly mode too. I think that would make me a lot, uh, a lot more understanding. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get her perspective. Megan, you, you mentioned learning. This is the final one. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, you've read so much. You've been exposed to so many interesting thinkers and, and just like really, really lasting books that for someone who's like, you know what? Yeah, this is really intriguing. I, I'm really in cu in, curious about what Megan said and obviously going to pick up her book, The Good Life Method. But any other books you think people might really enjoy um, learning more? You know, this sounds like philosophy 101 and a lot of people had to suffer through it in college, but it's worth another another look is Plato's Republic. Uh, and it's a book that's, it's hard to read. Um, but if you have a couple pointers and bits of guidance, uh, I think it's a great book to read right now. The opening starts with Socrates and his friends debating whether or not the good life is just about having as much power as you can over other people and not ever feeling like vulnerable or whether or not there's some things that we hope for like justice that require us to want to give up our power um, or to, to just rethink how we're living in really fun fundamental ways. I think that that's very, that just feels like such a live question right now for us. Hmm. Um, Plato talks a lot about like how should how should we educate young people and what kinds of things should we aspire to give to them and why do we remain so ignorant? Um, those are all questions that the Republic takes up, which again, it's going to be weird and it'll be a little bit of a difficult read, but it's worth spending some time in right now. Hmm. I think if you want a really fun, if you want just like a fun philosophical read, uh, besides the good life method, which you should definitely order, uh, there's a philosopher that died a couple of years ago named Derek Parfit, who wrote this book called Reasons and Persons. And I, I always tell my students that this book reminds me of like the treasure chest at the doctor's office when you were a kid. I don't know if I don't know if you had this, but like whenever I had to go to the doctor as a kid, if you were really good on the way out, you'd go out and my doctor had this huge box of all just like random toys, like all kinds of random stuff. And that the randomness was the excitement. Like you'd go and you'd pull something out and no matter what, it would be interesting and weird and you could take it home. And Derek Parfit's Reasons and Persons is this book about what it is to be a person, um, what it is to be rational, what our moral goals should be. 
And it's a grab bag. Like talk about a book you can skip around in, like find a middle chapter and just start reading. And he's very good at giving you these interesting thought experiments and puzzles to think about. And as you try to think about how you would answer it versus how he answers it, you start to realize something about yourself and you could take it up and put it down. Um, but it's a, it's a really wonderful example. He's a, he's a very important philosopher in the last century, but a really wonderful example of somebody who's just clearly having fun with philosophy and, uh, and the, the thought experiments, these like examples and puzzles that you think through are something that you can take and pack away to keep thinking about. Uh, but I think he, if you want an example of a philosopher that's clearly at the top of his game and having a blast, Reasons and Persons, it's a, now it's a, it's a 40-year-old book. It was published in the 80s, but it's still like still pretty neat. Um, and it'll give you that book will give you something to talk about. It's a, I, I haven't read that, so I'm really excited to pick that up now. But Megan, your work, uh, I, I hope it's obvious how, how intrigued I am by you, your thinking, uh, your early work, even in time biases, which we didn't get time to talk about Uh uh, I, I would recommend it to the listeners. They check that out. But your new book out January 4th, The Good Life Method. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Of course, we're going to have it linked up in the show notes everywhere you can buy it. Anything you want to just leave them with, though? I guess the biggest thing that uh, that I would hope we would all commit to in the next year, we've, we're in this period of a lot of change, and we've all lived through some episodes recently in our lives that we, we were not prepared for and that we've never seen anything like this before. I think in 2022, it can be a year for us to really start to understand who we've become as a result of all of this and who we'd like to be in the, you know, in the chapters that are coming up. And that philosophy doesn't need to be an intimidating part of that. It can be just a huge help for everyone. People are meant to reason about these questions. We're, meant, we're all meant to have philosophy accompanying us as we try to set new goals and try to figure out what we're really hopeful for again. And I think we all, especially in this coming year, are ready for new goals and a little bit more hope. And I would like to think that this book, more specifically, but also just this tradition, would uh, would be there for us as we start to, to try to think optimistically about what we're looking forward to. It's a great place to wrap up. Megan Sullivan, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Hey, thank you, Sean. That was really fun. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.